Hi there, it's Elliot. Before we get to the episode, I just wanted to squeeze in a quick mention about the Page Learning Lab, our new online learning program for communications professionals. Page and its members are charting the future of the profession, and the lab gives you access to their thinking, the most progressive thinking out there on topics ranging from comtech and journey communications to culture change, stakeholder capitalism, business skills, and DE&I. It's tailored learning designed to fit into your busy schedule. For more information, check it out at learning.page.org. There are few issues in American politics more contentious than abortion rights. And with the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision on Dobbs versus Jackson, which overturned the landmark Roe versus Wade decision and eliminated a constitutionally protected right to abortion, the issue has never been more urgent. Though it's front and center right now, the battle over abortion rights has been waged on a number of fronts over the years since Roe. In many cases, legislators have been chipping away at those rights through policies meant to make it harder to access abortion. In this episode, we'll be looking at one such effort in Texas and how the ride-sharing company Lyft responded to protect the interests of its drivers. Our two guests today are recent graduates from Boston University, whose case study on this story earned them the top prize in the annual student case study competition that Page holds each year in partnership with the Institute for Public Relations. Later on, we'll hear from Dominic Carr, Vice President of Communications at Lyft, about what went into the decision to act on such a polarizing issue. Both of these conversations, with the students and with Dominic, took place before the Dobbs decision was handed down. But the issues we discussed have only become more relevant since then. I'm Elliot Mizrahi, and this is the new CCO. I am Caitlin Dickinson. I'm from Middletown, New Jersey, currently living in Highlands, New Jersey. I finished up my master's degree at Boston University this past January 2022. I'm Clay Patrick. I'm from Meridian, Mississippi, but I'm currently living in Boston, Massachusetts after wrapping my master's degree at Boston University this past January. Well, congratulations to both of you for winning this year's case study competition. I guess let's just start with the impetus. What is SB8 and into what broader political social context was this legislation put forth? So Texas Senate Bill 8 was a state-level attack on a woman's right to choose to end her pregnancy if she so desired. It was defined as the heartbeat bill in many circles because it outlaws an abortion after a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is generally about the sixth week of pregnancy, well before many women know that they are pregnant. And so it effectively disables a woman's ability to make an informed situational decision on ending her pregnancy. And what's unique about the bill is how it evades federal precedents set in uh Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, the two big cases in um, abortion legislation. And so Texas legislators who established a private civil right of action, so it means that private citizens unrelated to the abortion case at hand could bring a lawsuit valued at at no less than $10,000 in civil court which is a new way of weaponizing the public to uphold a law. And so that is really the heart of what made SB8 so different and groundbreaking and world-changing. 
Yeah, to me, the broader context surrounding the events is the fact that Texas Senate Bill 8 evaded federal precedents like Roe v. Wade by putting the onus of enforcement on private citizens. So like Clay said, they essentially were weaponizing Texas as a means to an end to ban abortion. So we were interested to see how Lyft, a company known for its inclusive culture and corporate social responsibility, would protect its customers and drivers in this case, especially given the political nature of the bill. What would SB8 have done in practice? So SB8 is now currently law in Texas, and what makes it unique is not only can you sue the doctors who perform the abortion, but you could also sue people like rideshare drivers who are just driving a private citizen from one place to another. And under this law, the people suing were subject to payouts of no less than $10,000. So it's almost incentivizing private citizens to turn in their neighbors and everyone in their community who they think might have gotten an abortion. It's a modern day witch hunt. It really is. And one of the things we came across is in our analysis is that there was this historian on another podcast who actually compared this law to the Fugitive Slave Act because it's hard to find many other historical precedents for a law with a bounty hunter type system of enforcement. That's what was really different about SBA. Abortion is clearly a very controversial and sensitive topic, but Lyft made a choice. What action did Lyft decide to take and why? So September 2nd, 2021, Lyft announced that it had created a Texas driver legal defense fund, which would pay any and all legal fees drivers incurred as a result of being sued under Senate Bill 8 while driving for Lyft. Additionally, the company donated a million dollars to Planned Parenthood to, quote, help ensure the transportation is never a barrier to healthcare access. The company has constructed an inclusive culture through three critical values that they lead by. Those values are be yourself, uplift others, and make it happen. So Socially Lift has continually supported different social initiatives that may be um, supporting low-income communities through their program Lift Up, which is its branded program encompassing free rides and discounts to people in need, especially communities of color and the elderly. Uh, one of the program revolves around access to COVID-19 vaccinations. Lyft has enacted similar programs for people living in food deserts without reliable transportation or for important elections. So throughout 2020 and 2022, We've seen that Lyft has financially supported drivers during COVID-19 and essentially has a precedent for themselves of actionably standing up for internal and external stakeholders. So while the Texas Driver Defense Fund is not considered a Lyft Up program, it's another example of the corporation standing up for its stakeholders. Throughout their communications, John Zimmer, the co-founder and president of Lyft, repeatedly made it clear that the decision was not made with the bottom line in mind. And so I want to say that it's a combination of all of the above, values, brand, all of it. 
because Lyft's mission and values, as Caitlin said, reflect a, a sense of community in a way. They Their values and mission for, reflect a future with a greatly reduced personal vehicle ownership, and that can only be supported by a community with positive intention between the people who do ride share. And so in the case of all the lift up programs, the big thing here is that the corporation had no legal risk directly. The drivers would be the one who are sued. The passengers were the ones who could have been sued or were in danger. The corporation as an entity wasn't in danger of being sued, but they made this decision to stand up for vulnerable people that they could protect. How did Lyft communicate its decision once it was made? It communicated its decision through a blog post on Lyft's website and a Twitter thread from CEO Logan Green and a retweet thread from the brand that reemphasized the brand values. Logan Green's tweet really served as what we're doing. So his exact tweet said, Texas Senate Bill 8 threatens to punish drivers for getting people where they need to go, especially women exercising their right to choose. Lyft has created a driver legal defense fund to cover 100% of legal fees for drivers sued under Senate Bill 8 while driving for our platform. And so in this way, Green's tweet served as a, here's what we're doing. But then the brand Twitter followed up with how it didn't align with their values. And in conjunction with their owned media, there was a lot of earned media as well. Um, CEO Logan Green and President John Zimmer, and at the time General Counsel Kristen Servicek, um, they all had media interviews. And some of the highlights included interviews that resulted in features on USA Today, Yahoo!, CNN, CNBC, and NPR. So that was another way that the company was able to express its messaging on this hot button issue. Why do you think they chose Twitter as the channel for communicating the decision? I couldn't say for sure, but if I were to assume, I would think since they only issued a blog post and not a press release, this was something that might have been organized in a short period of time. So I think it was the quickest way to get their message out and also considering Lyft's audience and who their customer is. Lyft probably chose Twitter because many people use it, especially in younger age brackets, people who would care about this issue. And considering the state of business communications in the world we live in, I would argue that Twitter has become the modern day newsroom for many brands and corporations because it's somewhere that people who are interested in the company can keep up with what a company is actionably doing. It presents a great thought leadership channel where patrons don't have to go to a newsroom or a blog buried in the depths of a website. It lives where they consume their media. And you did some analysis of the conversations that ensued from that, let's say in the you know hour or so after the announcement, what did you see that happened? So within the hour, we saw a lot of response, uh, namely from their primary competitor, Uber, 
So within one hour or about an hour and a half, Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi quote tweeted Green applauding the brand, applauding Green, and adding that drivers shouldn't be put at risk for getting people where they need to go. And that Uber would do exactly what Lyft had done. They would also cover legal fees and thank Lyft for the push to step in the right direction. What was the sentiment of the reaction? It was definitely a mixed bag. There were some tweets responding saying thank you and well done or simply just sharing cheering emojis. Um, But then there was the other hand where people were like, this is outrageous. I'm just going to use Uber instead of Lyft, which is kind of ironic because within the first hour, Uber said that they were going to match Lyft and also take action. It seems as though because Lyft was the first out of the gate, they received a lot of recognition and sort of positive uh, sentiment that Uber seems not to have enjoyed. Is that the case? And if so, why do you think? That's a split bag. So in media, in earned media, um, Uber and Lyft were very much mentioned together. Lyft usually, in most headlines, preceded Uber. But because they had both done the same thing, they were both recognized um, as doing something about Senate Bill 8. Lyft generally was acknowledged in earned articles that they did it first and that Uber followed suit, but most earned sentiment remained neutral. On the Twitter audit front, Uber's responses gave sentiment that it wasn't exactly in alignment with their previous communications as activists. So we've talked about the conversational reaction, the social reaction to it. Through your analysis, what did you learn to be the financial implications of the decision? So the timing of this announcement was very important to understanding the financial repercussions. So Green sent his tweet announcing the decision about 45 minutes prior to the NASDAQ's closing bell before Labor Day weekend. The market didn't have a lot of time to react to the decision on the day of the announcement, but share price did drop about 3% on the day of the announcement. When trading resumed the following Tuesday after Labor Day, trade volume was up to about 6 million trades, but was consistent within their normal range. What's more interesting to look at is how the quarterly results announced in November for Lyft's third quarter were affected or not affected by this decision. What we found was that Lyft had a 13% increase in revenue compared to their second quarter of 2021. And while many financial factors influence the market, what's really more interesting than the finances is the non is the material non-financial metrics that the company announced. So the company had a 45% increase in driver supply with 60% of those being newly registered drivers who'd never driven for the platform before. 
Lyft had an increase of 18.9 million active users in the third quarter, 10.5% demand increase over the second quarter, which was actually almost 90% of their pre-pandemic passenger volumes. So if this decision had an effect on Lyft, we don't see it as a negative. We see them coming back stronger than ever in the third quarter. Most of the news outlets' coverage remained politically neutral without mentioning any kind of personal opinions on the Texas abortion ban. So we did a trend search of the media coverage surrounding Lyft's response to the heartbeat bill, and that showed that there were roughly 1,800 total media mentions in the U.S. and Canada, and of that, Uh, 440 were categorized as having negative sentiment, about 1,400 were neutral, and only nine were positive. So while this is automated through a database, we determined that a lot of the negative sentiments didn't derive from the mentions of Lyft, but the article as a whole. So if Lyft only has one line in the article, that wasn't negative, and most of the time it was just neutral. But overall, of the aggregated data pulled from this search, it showed that media mentions had a total of about 14 billion impressions based on each outlet's unique visitors per month, equating to roughly $26 million in terms of ad revenue. Based on what you saw in your analysis, what is one thing that you think Lyft did especially well here that others can learn from? And what is one thing that you think they maybe could have done differently? So I would say that Lyft did exceptionally well in sticking to its values and expressing its authenticity. Um, When writing this case study, we specifically looked how Lyft determined their actions and exemplified their actions and compared it with the page principles. So that kind of distinguishes how authentic and how ethically sound a company's actions is. The page principles say to tell the truth, to prove it with action, uh, listen to stakeholders, manage for tomorrow, conduct public relations as if the whole enterprise depends on it, realize an enterprise's true character is expressed by its people, remain calm, patient, and good-humored. So throughout the entire case study, Lyft showed that they were listening to the stakeholders. Um, The co-founder, John Simmer, said in an NPR interview that the company received multiple concerning statements from its Texas-based drivers about Senate Bill 8. The drivers were scared about their employment and whether or not they could be sued and the final financial repercussions that could possibly impact them. So in an effort to take away some of the stress from the drivers who ultimately were just trying to do their jobs, Lyft listened to the stakeholders and proved it with action by going above and beyond what they needed to do to protect their employees and also show the world that they care about 
their customers and they care about access to healthcare for women. So they donated a million dollars to Planned Parenthood and pledged to cover all the litigation costs. Clay, what do you think? I really think they did a phenomenal job of creating goodwill for the greatest number of their stakeholders. And so the only thing I can think of that goes against creating goodwill for stakeholders is in one interview, John Zimmer did say that the company probably wouldn't stand with a driver who was pro Senate Bill 8. But overall, considering responses from passengers, from drivers, from shareholders, from all of the stakeholder groups that we looked at, the company did a really good job of considering how most people feel and acting in a way that both supported their values, considered the desires and needs of their stakeholders, and acted in the best interest of the greatest number of people. In a sentence or two, what do you think is is the big takeaway or the lesson for communicators here? It, It would be seen as heartless to jump on something for the sake of press coverage like Senate Bill 8. The big takeaway here is that if you want to be an advocate of a certain topic, you need to prove it with action time and time again and not just capitalize on a situation as we've seen here. There are two ways to approach authenticity, and this case shows how one company did it right and one company was less successful. Ultimately, I think the biggest takeaway is that Lyft's response was an authentic representation of corporate social responsibility and how advancing conversations on how enterprises can value stakeholders and discussions around hot-button issues can in turn promote action and advocacy. I remember reading the Edelman 2021 trust parameter, which stated that businesses are the most trusted organizations when government is absent. People clearly expect businesses to step in and fill a void. So in the wake of this perception, it's abundantly clear that organizations face criticism on the authenticity of their actions, whether or not they're hopping on a social bandwagon or doing it because they believe in it. Essentially, stakeholders need to be able to distinguish between authentic, politically motivated CSR campaigns and those who are just woke washing. The case study that Clay and Caitlin produced is exceptional in its detail and analysis. Even more impressive is that it was produced entirely from publicly available information. So I asked them both, if you could ask Lyft CCO a question about this case, what would that be? I would want to know exactly like what the process looked like when deciding to take action, what the timing looked like, how far in advance were Lyft's actions prepared. And I'd also like to know how comfortable the executives were on speaking on this issue. I have two thoughts that come to mind. One, I would like to know how this played out. If any drivers ever needed and used the protection, what I would like some clarity on if the fund was only designed to cover legal fees, if it would have covered the $10,000 bounty. There, there are a lot of loose ends in how execution 
of usage would play out. And so I, I would really like to know more about if it ever happened and what that would have looked like if it were ever brought to the forefront. My other thought was if this is against Lyft's corporate values and is going to become a core tenet of authentic communications, they need to continue to advocate for it. And so in December, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Clinic. It's a case that's personally close to me, being from Mississippi. It's against the constitutionality of Mississippi's 2018 state law that banned abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. And so while it doesn't have the same teeth to attack a rideshare driver that the Texas bill did, I'd like to know if they have thought about how they could remain authentic moving into other precedent-altering cases and other trigger laws and anything else that might happen moving forward on this issue. So we reached out to Lyft CCO, and he graciously agreed to share his perspective on the story. My name is Dominic Carr. I'm the Vice President of Communications at Lyft. I've been at the company about 10 or 11 months after 18 years at Microsoft, where I led the global public affairs team. You know, I love the case study. I actually learned a bunch from reading it. It was good to see all of our our historical work sort of put in context. But the bit that we hadn't done, in all honesty, was, you know, a really detailed sentiment analysis. We obviously looked at the coverage um, and the volume and stuff, but we didn't get around to doing the detailed sentiment analysis. And it it was super interesting to read that. And I think, you know, Caitlin, Clay, I think you, you, you got the right conclusion from the data, which is, you know, we took the coverage to be overwhelmingly positive, even though the formal sentiment analysis was a little bit more neutral just because of the nature of the topic. Returning to Caitlin's question from earlier, I asked Dominic about how Lyft came to its decision and how comfortable executives were in speaking out on the issue. Lyft is a company that's sort of engaged in the world around us. It's not a company that sort of has a narrow focus. So we've always been focused on on the community around us, whether it's through the Lift Up program, vaccine access, food access, healthcare access, voting access. Um, those are all issues the company's been involved on. So it is a company that thinks about its role in the world and, and how it can be a positive force. This specific instant, you know, I can came up pretty rapidly the last week of August, first week of September, right before Labor Day last year, we had started to see some internal questions. We'd started to see some questions from drivers. We started to see press coverage that was talking about um, rideshare drivers as being an example of the kind of people who could be swept up in this law. And so we had this conversation about what does it mean for our community, riders and drivers? What does it mean for um, Passengers who want to get to healthcare appointments and might have their ride declined because drivers were scared to take them somewhere. What does it mean for drivers who were scared about the consequences for them? And it actually all happened pretty quickly. We had some internal email on Wednesday and Thursday. And by Friday morning, uh, five or six of us on the leadership team were on a call. I remember it well because I wasn't even in the office. I was on a day's vacation and um, was standing in somebody's backyard instead of in the office. Uh, And we talked about it. We talked about what it meant for the company and what it meant for the Lyft community of riders and drivers. Um, And as you'd expect, people had done thoughtful work on pros and cons and options. Is it typical in a case like this that the entire leadership team would come together? Or do you have a, a team or did you at the time have a team in place whose job it was to sort of consider the risks and benefits around a decision like this? 
Uh, you know, I'd say um, for a big decision like this, the leadership team definitely talk. You know, there was work done in advance. We have a public policy team, a government affairs team, folks on my team huddled that Thursday to talk about options and what might happen. But it felt like a, a big decision. Um, it felt like an important decision. And it wasn't the entire leadership team. So I should be clear, it was five or six of us. It was our two co-founders, Kristen, our general counsel, our head of government affairs, and me, um, if I recall right, it was the group that, that talked that Friday morning. Um, but yeah, a bit of both, I would say. We the, the teams did work to think about options of things we could do. Uh, but ultimately, it was a, a leadership decision um, given the profile of the issue. I think the other thing is important. We've always tried, I know other companies are the same, that not just to say things, but always be prepared to do things. So, you know, obviously one of the options would have been to simply say, this is a bad idea, we don't like the law, um, but we didn't think that was sufficient. So we wanted to do things as well. And that's why we took those two actions that, that the case study did such a good job of describing the driver defense fund um, and the, the donation to Planned Parenthood, uh, all in that spirit of don't just say things, but do things too. As a public company, was any specific care given to reaching out to investors to explain the decision and assuage any concerns they might have had about its implications? Not, not really. Um, you know, I, we can talk a little bit about how the actual communications went out, but it was pretty fast. We had that call Friday morning that, that we hung up on the phone. A couple of us worked on kind of what we would actually say, the tweets and the statements and those kind of things. Logan took the pen to his own tweets and, and our CEO and, and sort of made them his own because he, he felt strongly about the issue and wanted to speak you know, authentically as him. Um, and then we put them out. And so it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a long runway, let me put it that way, to to kind of work through all the stakeholder notifications. We wanted to make sure we were talking to drivers directly. So we, we, we did do a, a bunch of work to reach out to the driver community and make sure they understood what this meant for them and what the driver defense fund meant and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think over the days that followed, Everybody in the company talked to their stakeholders, our policy people talked to government people, our investor relations people talked to investor people, um, the community team talked to riders and drivers. But um, as I say, I don't, I don't, I don't know that um, the financial implications were front and center, and I don't know that they were front and center for investors either. How would you describe your role specifically in this? Were you the convener of the dialogue in the first place? Were you asked for counsel on... Uh, you know, which stakeholder groups might be affected here? How would you describe the the role that you played in stewarding the organization to this decision? One of the things I like about Lyft is they do think of communications as a strategic function and, and we have a seat at the table. I'm on the small executive leadership team um, along with the sort of, you know, senior folks of the company. So I feel like comms definitely has a seat at the table, which is great. And in this context, that applied too. Um, I was not the convener, actually our CEO was the convener, which felt right uh, in the context of this decision and, and how people felt about it. But we were absolutely in the thick of it. We were in the discussions on Wednesday and Thursday. We were in that call, a small number of people in that call on Friday. I was in that call on Friday. Um, and I'd say we were, we were central to every step of the process, um, but it really was uh, our very top leadership, our co-founders who I think were convening the discussion. And, and, and is there anything that you want to share about what's happened since then uh, at the company in terms of its policy? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I think we, we definitely want to try and be uh, consistent. Like this was not a one-off. We don't want to leave people with the impression that it's one-off. So we've definitely been looking closely at, at other similar bills moving through state legislatures across the country. Um, late in April, I think, I'll get my dates wrong, but maybe the last week of April, there was a, a similar bill that passed in Oklahoma 
Um, and so we extended the driver defense fund to, to the community in Oklahoma and said that we would, we would do a similar thing there to, to take care of them in the event that they, um, they suffered legal fees or, or legal challenges. So we've tried to be both active on the issue through our public policy team, through our executives, um, and we tried to be consistent in similar actions that we took in Texas, uh, you know, Oklahoma being the best example, I would say. Dominic and I spoke before the Supreme Court ruled on the Dobbs case, even, in fact, before the leak of the decision. With that said, I asked him, again, pre-decision, about whether and how the company would continue its support on women's health issues. Yeah, great question. And and the short answer is yes. Um, You know, one of the things that we talked about in our blog post uh, about Oklahoma was that we were working on sort of a safe states program to, you know, funding travel costs to get people to states where uh, access to uh, abortion remained legal. Um, So that's an example of the kind of work that we've been doing. Um, And I think we're definitely in conversations with folks about where we can be most useful, kind of following the same principle I talked about earlier, say something, don't just say something, but also, you know, do something, put your money where your mouth is. Um, So uh, the short answer is yes. We've done it already in Oklahoma and we're continuing to have the right, you know, conversations with with partners like Planned Parenthood and others on on where we can be most useful um, as the debate evolves. You know, I think most people want to wait and see what the actual decision is before talking too publicly about those things. But we're definitely committed to sort of following through on our on our broad commitment, if that makes sense. I also asked Dominic how he and his team organized its approach to the communications and how they went about measuring success or if that was even a consideration at all. I do think for any communications professional um, now, employees are a fundamental audience. I was asked recently, you know, what's the most important audience? And I actually think employees are the most important audience for every communications person, whether they're in external communications or internal communications, just so important to the success of the business and and employees expect a lot from their company and their employer. Um, so the the focus on internal audience is, is super important. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that motivates us to to stand up on these issues is that, that we get a lot of encouragement from our team members to do these things. So we didn't actually set goals for this a little bit. I, I think I touched on earlier. It was swift and pretty rapid when we, when we decided to act and the communications went out that same afternoon. So, you know, it wasn't, uh, super planned with objectives set and that kind of stuff. But we got an incredibly positive reaction from team members. People were super appreciative of the company taking a stand, super appreciative that we were prepared to put you know resources behind it. Um, and I think people really latched onto this point about somebody needed to try and sort of break the dam, as it were, of, of mostly silence from, from companies. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, And even though there's a lot that lifted well here. I'm wondering if looking back, there's any lesson you learned or anything that you might have done differently knowing what you know now? Um, yeah, I mean, we had a, a, a bunch of detailed learnings around how we got the word out to press. And frankly, you know, on a holiday weekend, the team wasn't quite big enough to do the work that needed to get done. Um, we didn't quite see it coming. I, I do think the bigger lesson for me though is, is not necessarily a narrow comms one. I think, what was so encouraging to me, and I was relatively new in my tenure at Lyft when this happened, is just the fact that our leadership team, our co-founders, our general counsel, the, the doing the right thing was very simplifying and very clarifying. And it sounds a little trite to say that. We could have 
spent a lot of time, a lot of time sort of agonizing over the pros and cons and, and the implications. And none of us really knew what those were and how they would play out. Um, but we weren't paralyzed by the, that kind of, should we, shouldn't we? What, what was, what, what made the decision faster and simpler was a real clear-eyed understanding on the part of our most senior leadership that this is the right thing to do and doing the right thing is always the right thing to do, if you know what I mean. I, I was super encouraged by that, just the decisiveness and the clarity and the kind of sense of we'll deal with all the things that come as a result of this decision, but the decision itself is pretty clear and pretty straightforward and pretty simple when you ground it in the company's values and mission um, and the work that we've done before. So that's perhaps my biggest learning. It's that clarity is, is incredibly powerful, both in terms of making the decisions and in terms of the speed of decision-making too. How do you feel personally about it? I feel like I would feel a lot of pride uh, and especially you coming into this organization as a new CCO. I'm wondering what sort of feeling that experience left with you and your team. It was, it was a great way to start, if I can put it that way. It was, you know, I joined at the end of July and this was the beginning of September, so whatever that is, five, six weeks. Um, you know, it felt, it felt great to see a company prepared to, to step up and, and, and do, do the right thing. You know, the context like we talked about earlier a little bit was mostly people were silent. I think there are a couple of Texas-based, Bumble, one of the Texas-based companies had spoken out, but most of the big companies had not and, and, and didn't after we spoke out. They didn't. I heard from you know colleagues of mine in communications roles across different companies, all of whom were like, "Wow, I can't believe you did that." Um, but it felt very energizing, honestly. Uh, so that was one thing. And then you know we talked about it a little earlier. It, it felt good that communications was in the room and in the decision making and had a seat at the table, and that was super encouraging to know that that's how the company and how the company's leadership viewed the discipline and that it, it valued what it is that me and my team do. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a, I guess the short way is, it was a good way to start my time at Lyft. If you enjoyed today's episode of The New CCO, be sure to check out our latest episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear what you think so that we can keep making this podcast more interesting and valuable to you. To find out more about what's happening at Page please visit us at page.org. Special thanks to Rivet360, our podcast partner, without whose support we simply would not be able to bring this podcast to you. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on The New CCO.